Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Premier Kenny, thank you very much for taking the time. You've got a lot going on. You sure do. Good to be here, Roy. Yeah, good to have you with us. So the global news story begins, a third-party review commissioned by the Alberta government to look into its initial response to the COVID-19 pandemic has come up with five recommendations for the province to consider as it continues to navigate the unprecedented public health crisis. Report posted yesterday on the government website. So uh, no no surprise, the uh, your, your opposition, the NDP, says that you haven't done what you're supposed to be doing. Premier, what's the takeaway from this particular report for your government, for you? I don't think there's any uh, really shocking or surprising conclusions or recommendations. It's uh, an emphasis on the need to work closely with uh, uh, municipalities and uh, local community groups. We've we've actually been doing that. Uh, Let me say, I think Alberta's, uh, Albertans have really risen to the challenge of the COVID crisis. Uh, At this stage, we have a per capita fatality rate from COVID that is 27% lower than Canada's, uh, substantially lower than the other large provinces, and which is like 45% lower than the per capita death rate in the U.S. and about 30-35% lower than the European Union's. And yet, according to Oxford University's Blavatnik Center, we have done that with less damaging public health restrictions, less stringent than the other nine Canadian provinces, less stringent than 41 of the 50 United States last year, and less stringent than almost all of the European countries. So uh, no jurisdiction has had a perfect response, obviously. We've all been uh, trying to navigate through the crisis. But I would say that a jurisdiction with a substantially lower than average death rate but also less damaging restrictions, has done a pretty good job, and I give all credit to Albertans for their care and uh, the past uh, 18 So when you hear criticism, and you've heard it from politicians, both in Edmonton and in Calgary, and some in the medical profession, that you did the wrong thing by removing restrictions, 16th of August, if you test positive for COVID, you don't have to quarantine any longer. It's recommended, but it's not required. When you hear the the, the complaints, and the complaints directed toward your medical officer of, of health, Dr. Hinshaw, what do you say? Well, I say that uh, we, we've been told all along that we should follow the scientific advice of our public health experts. It's exactly what we are doing. Our government has accepted without modification the recommendations of our chief medical officer, the brilliant uh, doctor. Okay, it's possible that we've lost uh, Premier Kenny. Are you there, Premier? Don't you just love technology, Premier? Sorry about that, right? I'm not sure what happened. Please continue. You were talking about the... Sure. Uh, the uh, yeah, I was just saying that, that Roy, we've always been told to follow the advice of our uh, scientific experts is exactly what we've done. Dr. Inshaw recommended this approach. He's our chief medical officer for health, and, and uh, it's based on the protection of vaccines. Uh, we're headed towards at least uh, 75% of our eligible Albertans being fully vaccinated, and 95% of the people contracting the disease and who are in hospital have not been fully vaccinated. But the most important thing is 90%. 90% of people over the age of 65 um, are fully vaccinated. Those are the folks by far most likely to have severe outcomes from the disease. So we've looked closely at the international experience and, uh, and the, uh, our own experience here. And as Dr. Hinshaw says, we have to recognize, we have to learn to live safely with COVID. We have to acknowledge it is not the only 
a health challenge or a public health challenge. We have to deal with a whole lot of other issues to keep people safe. And uh, that's the basis of the advice that she gave and that we accepted. I, I would ask these critics to show some deference uh, to the expert scientific data-driven advice uh, of our chief medical officer. Well, you know, sometimes experts show deference only to their own points of view. True. Uh, not to but be forgotten. Huh? No, in this case, it looks to me like there are some people who only want to follow expert advice when it accords with their own opinion. Yeah. This government has, you know, as I just told you, I think Alberta's had a good, not a perfect, but a good record with a lower death rate and less damaging restrictions. Uh, quite frankly, I'm not sure, sure um, how we could have done much better than that context. Global News reporting the federal government says the proposed Grassy Mountain Coal Project in southwestern Alberta cannot proceed. Environment and Climate Change Minister Jonathan Wilkinson has said the decision was based on information, including the findings of a joint review panel report. He said the project would likely have caused harm to surface water quality, to species including the threatened West Slope cutthroat trout and endangered white bark pine trees, and to the physical and cultural heritage of First Nations. Premier, what do you say to that? Well, the First Nations disagree, uh, and this I, I'm surprised the federal liberals would be so uh, dismissive of Indigenous concerns. The local First Nation, uh, whose historic lands is in this area, is called the Pekani, people of the Blackfoot Nation, and uh, that nation strongly supports this project as an opportunity for uh, environmentally responsible economic development, as does uh, uh, the Stony Nakoda. And uh, this is actually, just to clarify, this is about simply uh, reopening a mine that has operated safely in the past uh, for metallurgical coal. There are multiple metallurgical coal mines in Canada uh, that operate safely. So, um, our, you know, we obviously respect the position of, or the, the, the analysis done, by uh, independent regulators, but we, we, we are also going to respect the judicial proceedings where the Pecani and the Stonies are challenging the federal government trying to shut this down. They are saying that the, the Crown's duty to consult First Nations does not just to apply to First Nations who oppose resource development, it also applies to First Nations who support uh, resource development and their economic rights to move people from poverty to prosperity. So we're going to be uh, deferential to the interests of those First Nations. So this is nowhere. no. I don't think it is. Now the courts will, will weigh in on that. And there was a very recently an interesting case where the same federal liberal minister has tried to stop the expansion, or rather, a, a new project, a new mine in northern Alberta, uh, and the uh, one of the local First Nations uh, challenged this: the lack of consultation. They have many people employed at, employed at that mine. And the court has said the feds were wrong to do this without consultation. I really like seeing the shoe being put on the other foot now, as uh, increasingly courts are recognizing that First, First Nations have every right to pursue responsible economic development, and they need to be listened to in terms of those economic interests. You received a complaint letter, from what I hear, from the Federal Minister of Health, Patty Haidu. And you responded to the, to the Federal Minister of Health, and, and you said you will not be lectured by a minister who, quote, with her boss, appears hell-bent on a federal election. Expand, please, Premier. Well, uh, this is the same Federal Health Minister, Patty Hadju, who uh, lectured us, lectured Canadians, about why we should keep borders open from COVID hotspots like Wuhan 
at the very beginning of the pandemic, implying that it would be uh, racist to suspend border uh, travel from COVID hotspots. That decision was in part responsible for the virus coming to Canada. If you don't believe me, just look at what countries like Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, and Singapore did. They immediately sealed their borders from COVID hotspots in January, February of last year, and have been hugely successful at preventing viral spread while avoiding painful restrictions. This is the same federal liberal minister who also argued against mask use, who denied there was a pandemic because uh, she was listening uncritically to the World Health Organization, uh, as it seemed to be covering up, uh, in a sense, for the the, uh, conduct of the Chinese government. So we won't be lectured to by her, especially when she and her boss, Justin Trudeau, apparently are hell-bent on a federal election. Um, If they're really all that concerned about COVID and viral spread, then why would they be create be prepared to launch a federal election that will have uh, that will just increase social interaction? It's total hypocrisy, uh, and it's it's just obviously a political deflection on their part. The majority of Canadians are saying it's not time for an election, but the best guess is, and I, I want to ask you whether you subscribe to this. The best guess is we'll be hearing from Justin Trudeau in a matter of days with an election date. Yes. It, it appears that way. It's certainly the uh, the, the expectation. I, I I can't understand why, when this is a government that has fixed election date legislation for, I think, uh, two years from now, there's not been a non-confidence vote in Parliament, uh, and apparently they're concerned about uh, COVID-19. So he'll have to answer those questions if he calls it. Premier, when you uh, hear from, and I, this is a lot to cover here, and we only have minutes, what, when you hear from... Um, physicians, people, um, doctors in, in the Edmonton area, I believe, particularly, have suggested that you return to the restrictions that you not do on August 16th what you've said you will do, which the minister or this, the medical officer of health, Dr. Hinshaw, suggested would be appropriate for Alberta. When you hear that you shouldn't do this and you hear it from doctors, what do you say to those doctors? Well, that my... Uh the government's advice comes from a doctor uh, who is an expert in public health whose job it is to assess the data and provide advice on how to um, how to best address all of the health concerns we're facing. And that's what we've done in, in accepting without reservation and without modification the advice of our chief medical officer. Uh, and I would ask those, uh, you know, the same physicians have been asking for the same group that you're referring to have basically been advocating for pretty much hard lockdowns consistently over the past 18 months. They're part of the zero COVID crowd. Um, we, we believe that chasing after zero COVID uh, is a pointless exercise, just like what's happened in Australia. Every time the virus comes back, they go into a hard lockdown. They brought in the military to maintain curfews to keep people in their homes. Yeah. I don't think Canadians would accept that. The price of that would be uh, completely unacceptable in terms of uh, the, the, the social, mental, and mental All health right. of people in our society. I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford University about that in the next hour. Premier Kenny, when it comes to uh, Ottawa with the now-announced $6 billion daycare deal with Quebec, no, there's no election coming up, uh, $6 billion daycare deal with Quebec, and you said, and they're using transfer payments, you said that's the same deal the federal government uh, rejected for Alberta. So they are hopefully, I guess they're hopeful of significant uh, seat gain in the province of Quebec and, and not feeling there's much of that to be expected in Alberta. Yes? Exactly. And, uh, well, I think that's what is happening here. Um, we asked for full flexibility, a Quebec-style agreement 
that would recognize our jurisdiction in this area. And the feds uh, basically told us to go fly a kite. Then they signed exactly the same deal with the province of Quebec. Our question for Justin Trudeau is why are Quebec parents and kids more important to his government than Alberta parents and kids? Uh, it, it is a classic example of this being a two-tier federation under the Liberals, uh, of, of, uh, of Alberta being treated like a second-class province. And the irony is that the transfers going in to um, the Quebec child care program come in part from Alberta taxpayers. We contribute $20 billion net a year through our federal taxes. Quebec is getting $13 billion a year in equalization payments that already allows it to have more generous child care subsidies. So this is adding insult to injury. Okay. When it comes to uh, equalization payments, you're going to have a referendum on the 18th of October on that issue. Many are saying, well, it doesn't really carry any weight. Well, that be that as it may, it'll be an expression of opinion. And uh, we had a former prime minister, Mr. Chrétien, who in 1995 said with the Quebec referendum, the 50% plus one wins the day. So, and he didn't have the constitutional power to do that. Tell us uh, briefly uh, again about the, the referendum in October. Sure. And subject to that uh, 95 referendum, the Chrétien government asked the Supreme Court, what, what are the implications of a constitutional referendum held by a province? Yeah. And the judges said in the Quebec secession reference, if a province holds a referendum on a constitutional amendment with a clear question and a clear majority in favor, the feds then have to negotiate that amendment in good faith with the province. So we are going to be demanding that uh, that, that precedent, that, that law apply. Mm-hmm. Uh, to open negotiations on equalization. We're not against equalization. We just want a fair deal. And at the very least, this referendum is an opportunity for Albertans to speak loudly in favor of a fair deal uh, to elevate our demands for fairness to the top of okay. the national agenda in the same way that Quebecers have done so successfully for the last 40 years. We don't want to provide any tactical advantage to the Taliban or to others who may uh, try to bring harm to uh, those those who are remaining in Afghanistan. And, and by getting into too much detail, uh, we're essentially uh, tipping our hand as to how much progress we're making uh, with regards to the operation and who may be left uh, still to, to resettle in Canada. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure what he said. That's the immigration minister, Mendocino. I, I just, it's just a, it's a word salad. Meaningless. We don't want to tip our hand because we don't want to tell the Taliban what we're doing. What are you doing? Oh, yeah, you don't want to tip your hand. And I understand that part of it. You don't want to make operational plans public. I get that. But you've done nothing for years. You've had every opportunity to move to bring the interpreters who worked with Canada's military during the NATO mission. You've had years to bring them to this country. Years. And it's not as though you haven't been reminded We've done it on this program. My colleague Charles Adler on the Chorus Radio Network has done it. Our good friend Joe Warmington at the Toronto Sun, who got us all talking about the interpreters 12 years ago. It's not like you haven't had time, and it's not as though it hasn't been successive governments. We're not just picking on Trudeau here. They've all had opportunity, and they've done nothing. Governments have done nothing. The opposition parties have sat on their fat little fingers and done nothing. No, I haven't seen their fingers. I shouldn't comment. It's not politically correct. Um, They've done nothing. When it clearly needed to be done. So now we wait until the very last second when the Americans pull out of Afghanistan 
the last to leave, and the Taliban come sweeping in behind them. And who do the Taliban want? They want to get anybody who's helped the NATO countries during the long war. And who was on the front lines with our troops, the Afghan interpreters? And what have we heard from our frontline troops, veterans, on this program about those Afghan interpreters, how they saved Canadian lives, how they not only knew the language, but they knew the customs, they knew the territory, they knew what to do, and they passed it on, and they saved Canadian lives. And here we are, firing out word salads about things we're doing. What is, what's happened so far? Have I lost count, or has there been one airplane from Afghanistan, with largely embassy personnel. So what are we going to do now? Oh, yeah. Can't tell us. This is very serious, life-threatening reality. These interpreters face death from the Taliban who want to get them. We called him Left Behind Alex. And we spoke with him for at least five years, maybe longer. Periodically, we touch base with him on the air. He talked to us from Afghanistan. And he'd tell us of the fear and the threats, the threats he'd received, other interpreters had received, third-party threats. We're going to find you. We're going to kill you from the Taliban and other insurgent groups. Alex did manage to get out of Afghanistan because he did a lot of paperwork, chased a lot of paper trails, and he was able to get himself into the United States. He still wants to come to Canada. By the way, Minister, you could send a plane to the United States and pick up Alex and bring him here. Another photo opportunity for you. Just think about that. That should do it. That's all you need, an opportunity and another photo op. Am I a little cynical here? Possibly. Left behind Alex. His name is Sajid. How are you, Sajid? Hey, how's it going, my friend, Ro? Roy, thank you very much for me. I mean, thank you for having me in your program. So you, you, you guys are doing a good job. I don't know how to thank you guys. You don't have to thank us. You know, when we hear our military veterans say, through General Dean Milner, who was the last Canadian commanding officer in Afghanistan, saying that, the, the veterans consider the Afghan interpreters to be comrades in arms. You're one of them. That's what they say. They want you here because you're all together. So thank you for what you did. And please tell us, uh, Sajid, how desperate is the situation in Afghanistan right now for the interpreters who are still there? So thank you very much for the question. Really good question. Here's the answer. So, uh, I have to tell you, the situation is really critical right now. The interpreters that they are still in there, especially those individuals who serve on the front lines, they wore the cap uniforms. So right now they are living in hiding. I know there was a plane that came to Canada. And I don't want to say something bad, but they brought a bunch of couch potatoes, you know what I'm saying? Because they were working for the embassy. Doesn't make sense. What about those who serve on the front lines what about those who sacrificed who risked their lives you know they have families right now they are they are running they're hiding they're surviving i'm i'm in touch with hundreds of 
I mean, hundreds of uh, those interpreters, they're left behind. What happened to Alam Khan? What happened to Hidari? Like, why, why weren't they on the plane? They could have been there, like, easier or even earlier than the plane that just, I mean, landed in Canada. So they, they are suffering right now. If, and my question is to Justin Trudeau, Harjit Sajjan, and the immigration minister. Uh, if you want to fast track them, please do it now. You could have even done it before. But right now, please help them, take them out of there before they get killed by the Taliban. It's a really critical situation. It's insufferable. I know I understand because uh, the people who were in Afghanistan, I mean, who were deployed, they know what I'm talking about. They know the situation. Right now, there is no time. There's, uh, I mean, everything is done for the interpreters. The Taliban are looking for these individuals and their families everywhere. People were saying like Kabul is safe. No, it's not safe at all because I've seen people being assassinated by the Taliban. And these interpreters are under threat, serious threat. They have to be taken out as soon as possible. Because if they're not, it's just a question of time before they're caught. Yeah. There is no question. There's no hesitation on killing them and their families. They're going to put a bullet in their head, or maybe they're going to be tortured to death. I want that to sink in with people. And we've been talking about this for years. There was ample opportunity. Since 2015, my friend. Yeah. Since 2015. Is that the first time you were on the air with me, 2015? That was uh, Steve Morales from Global News. Another, uh, yeah, Yeah. Chris uh, Cambridge. And you've been on with uh, with my friend and colleague Charles Adler, and of course you know Joel Warmington very yes, well. Joel Warmington, yeah. You guys are all doing a good job. You know, uh, I received a phone call. I see. I received emails from my CAF mentors. Uh, they're trying to write down a letter for me. Uh, I mean, I mean, on behalf of me, and send it to the Trudeau's administration or the immigra- immigration minister. Uh, they're trying to take me out out of here. Because uh, I've tried, I struggled a lot to come to Canada. And now it's even easier because I'm in the United States. You no, know, I can just cross the border. But I don't want to just cross because there should be a difference between the uh, border crossers and those who serve the uniform on the front line. Most definitely. Uh, you, you, you worry about your family in Afghanistan. Exactly. Right? Yes. They are in Afghanistan. They were in Helmand province. I took them out. I took them to Kabul. They're not even safe. They're living in hiding. My parents, I couldn't, I couldn't take them with me to the United States because uh, the SIV, a special immigration visa for the United States, didn't have uh, that opportunity or chance or that option that I could include my parents and my younger brother. So that's why I just left them behind. Now I call them left behind by me because I couldn't take them. But I count on Canadians and the Canadian authorities are going to help me out uh, through this paperwork and stuff. Uh, there was a demonstration in uh, British Columbia uh, a couple of weeks ago, and Jim Zakam participated in that uh, because he was also worried about his uh, family. And the rest of the interpreters and also uh, Canadians joined this demonstration to take these families out of Afghanistan, out of farms. So I hope there is there will be a bright future. There will be a green light for uh, the interpreters yeah. that they can have their families out of there. Greg is in Delta, British Columbia. Hi, Greg. Uh, yeah, yeah, like, uh, 
I'm just a private citizen, but I come from a long, long line of military family that uh, served in the war. But anyway, uh, what can you do for these guys? What can a private citizen do for them? Uh, one of the things you can do is you can get onto your member of parliament. You know, this is going to sound like a broken record. I know. I understand that. No, it's, cool. right, it's, it's, it's just we shouldn't have to do this. They told no. us, right? I mean, they told us we had three ministers, Mendocino, Garno, and, uh, and, and Sajid. They all they held a news conference two weeks ago talking about what they were going to do and how they were going to get the interpreters here. We've had one plane, and it's been largely embassy personnel. So the interpreters are still there facing what they're facing. And what we hear from the Minister of Immigration and Citizenship is, well, we can't tell you what we're doing because it's operational plans. What operational plans? Well, I got a good buddy that did two tours over there, and he told me how much he liked the Afghan people. So I'll be writing a letter if that's all I can do for now. But let's let, let, let their God be with them. That's all I can see. Thank you, thank you, Greg. I appreciate that. Good to hear, eh, Sanjay? When you get that kind of support? Yeah, very, very good. Absolutely, this guy's doing a good job. You know. Yeah. Here's so. Uh, here's a, just, uh, yeah. Go ahead. No, I said here's Robert in Hamilton, Ontario. Um, Robert, what do you want to say to Sajat? Why don't you, why don't you speak to him directly? Well, I, I think I'm sorry that it's, this is the way it's gone. And, uh, and it's not indicative of the average person in Canada. It's really not. They, they see this as a black and white thing. They need help. They helped us. We have to reciprocate the help. Period. Okay? There, yeah. There's no real red or white or black or red... I don't give a crap about any of that. These people helped our, our military people in the field. We have to reciprocate that kindness. If we don't do that, everybody that's a superior needs to be fired. Appreciate your call, sir. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Yeah. Uh, Sajid, you, uh, you had friends, uh, interpreters died uh, on military patrols, yes? Yes. Yes, uh, I have a bad news as well. There was one interpreter who got killed just a few days ago in Helmand Province. If you are not aware, uh, I mean, aware of the Helmand Province, I have to tell you that Lashkarga, the district center, was invaded by the Taliban, and one interpreter got killed because the Taliban looked after him. I can't tell his name because his family is going to be in danger. Uh, his family escaped. They went somewhere safer. But his son, he's no longer alive. He got killed. Thank uh, Hold on. Uh, Barbara in uh, North Vancouver. Barbara, you have a personal history in the military. Um, all my, <clears throat> all my uncles were in the service during the Second World War, and then I have a, uh, my cousin's son went to Afghanistan about two years ago, and he came back, which was good. But uh, I just, I just feel that uh, it's, it's too late for letter writing. I think we should all. Uh, call on our MPs, and either in person sure, or by why phone. Not? Why not? I mean, I, I, this is serious, and uh, I, I just feel really disappointed. Do you know what disappoints me? That we don't have people who are actually standing up, uh, members of parliament, exclusive of their, their parties, getting up publicly and saying, we have to get on this. They're all, they're all, they're all in their little corrals, and they stay together like uh, they're so well-behaved. They do what their leaders and their caucus bosses tell them to do. You know, instead, of, they should just get up and do the right thing and say the right thing. Well, we certainly need it. Yes, so we can just 
Uh, it's just disappointing. I, I think uh, people are just too into themselves with all this uh, uh, COVID situation. Okay. They're not thinking about the world and people who are suffering like that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Barbara. Um, let me get Tony on. Uh, Tony, what are you doing with the phone lines now, guys? Quit messing well, Roy, you know, I was I was sitting in the park a couple of weeks ago, and I, I was happy that they're going to bring these guys back here and look after them. I think that's great. Absolutely fantastic. But why would they advertise it on the radio when this should be a classified thing? You shouldn't even know about this. Nobody should know about this. Now it's been advertised. These Taliban, they're, 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 they're very, very clever people. They can infiltrate any country regardless of security. Now, I think they've just caused a bit of trouble for these people by advertising it so much. Yeah, so you don't think they should have said anything at all? Oh, of course not, Roy. The only way you win a, Roy is, uh, win a war is, is that no, you're no. surprised. <laughs> no, but something had to be said. Because those... Yeah, but but, well, hold on, hold on. I'll tell you why. Because the, the interpreters are spread out over entire Afghanistan. It's hard to get a hold of them. And one of the ways that you do that, Tony, is through public messaging. So they know where to go. That's one of the things that's done. Sajid, how, uh, what's the last thing? We have about 30 seconds here. What do you want to say? So I just got a hold of Alam Khan and Aydari. They're doing okay. They're still asking for help. Um, they're really worried, you know. They're horrified. Terrified and living over there. So I mean, you, you, are, you, are, you saying, are you just saying you've been in touch with them just now? Yeah, just uh, recently I got a hold of them through another friend of mine. Okay. He talked to them. They're doing okay, but they're asking for help, immediate help. Reopening of schools after Labor Day. It's a contentious issue. I don't think it should be, but it is. Different provinces taking different approaches. So I got in touch with a good friend of this program, Michael Zweigstra, high school teacher in Manitoba. He's a fellow at the Frontier Center for Public Policy. He's an op-ed writer. He just wrote another piece about uh, education or opening schools in Ontario for the Epoch Times. He's the author of a number of books, including What's Wrong with Our Schools and How We Can Fix Them, and Sage on the Stage. Michael, how are you? I'm doing very right. Good to have you with us. Absolutely. So you were very specific and very direct. We're going to be speaking later on uh, this hour with Harvey Bischoff, the former President of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation, who's now an NDP, well, he's an NDP candidate, will be when the next Ontario election rolls around. We'll talk to him in a little bit. But you were very specific, and we'll talk about the provinces where this program airs, so west, east to west, Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and BC, and what they're doing. But let's start with Ontario. You're not impressed with the decisions taken by the Ontario government. Walk us through what you see the problems to be. Well, when I look at the Ontario plan, the, the good thing is that they are emphasizing in-person classes. There is going to be a return of extracurricular activities, which, of course, those are important to students and well-being. But they're keeping the mask rule for all students and staff, uh, which, of course, is not ideal for, for learning environments. And they're also requiring high schools to schedule students for only two classes per day. That means that horrible quad-nester system where students are taking the same class for three hours a day for a couple of months. And most high school students will tell you pretty quick that is a horrible way for most of them to learn. And so it's really unfortunate that the Ontario government is handcuffing 
uh, school boards in this way and putting some of these requirements in place. So as you wrote in the column, ironically, it appears that the Ontario government recognizes this fact that it's time to get back to normal, as you wrote, uh, but won't admit it. The province's back-to-school plan allows all extracurricular activities to resume, permits students from different cohorts to intermingle during the recess breaks, and even lets music classes take place in school buildings. It would be far better, you wrote, and more intellectually honest, if the Ontario government simply copied the Saskatchewan government's back-to-school plan. What are they doing in Saskatchewan? Well, Saskatchewan is taking a, a very different approach. They're basically uh, turning the public health orders into public health recommendations. And so while school divisions do have the ability to implement some of their own restrictions if they choose to do so based on local circumstances, schools in Saskatchewan will be able to run essentially normally. And so, for example, unless the school board mandates otherwise, masks are optional, Schools can schedule, as per usual, extracurricular goes on. And so it's much more of a, uh, of a recommendation approach in Saskatchewan as opposed to uh, the route going, that Ontario is taking. Okay, so we'll come to your province in a minute, but let's continue west. Let's go to Alberta. The Premier is going to be joining us later. How do you see Alberta's reopening of schools or going, kids going back to school? All the provinces were different throughout the last uh, 15 months, to a greater or lesser extent, with Ontario being the province that had the greatest number of lockdowns. What do you see in Alberta? Alberta is pretty similar to Saskatchewan. Uh, they, In their back-to-school plan so far, they're also indicating that they're going with the recommendation approach. Now, that being said, they are planning to release some guidance this month in terms of those recommendations, um, but all indications are that schools will be able to function basically normally in Alberta, and that certainly is parallel with all of the other public health orders that are being lifted in Alberta. So you like Saskatchewan, you like Alberta? I do. I think that uh, I think it's time for students to have as normal a learning uh, environment as possible. It's something they deserve and need. So, Michael, on one more province to the west and British Columbia, what do you see there? British Columbia is the one we have the least amount of information on because they're plan was actually announced back in June, which is pretty similar to Saskatchewan and Alberta going the recommendation approach. But we also see that in B.C., they're going a regional approach in their general public health orders and tightening some things up. So I wouldn't go too far in saying for sure what schools are going to look like in B.C., because I'm pretty sure they're going to be updating uh, their protocols based on the latest information. And in your province of Manitoba, what's happening there? Uh, Manitoba released its plans just uh, uh, just earlier this week. Um, basically, going also a lot to the recommendation approach. Uh, differentiation, though, between elementary students and high school. Elementary students will still need to be kept in cohorts throughout the day. High school will not have that requirement. Masks are recommended but are not required. And extracurricular, all those things will be able to resume and uh, there will, of course, be other public health recommendations. So Manitoba has more uh, restrictions on than the other western provinces, but not as many as Ontario. So do they all essentially get a passing grade from you, some better than others, except for the province of Ontario? Well, I would give them all a passing grade, because to get a passing grade is not that difficult, uh, but I would certainly give Ontario the lowest grade, because they're keeping some of the restrictions in place, particularly the, 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 two, the two subjects per day for high school students that will make their lives miserable but not actually do much to actually uh, keep them safe. And so 
that's where I'd give them a lower grade. But certainly the other provinces that, that, that we're looking at here, uh, I would give a, a well above passing grade based on the current information. Yeah. Well, do you think I'd be correct when I say to you that this ain't over yet? After Labor Day, we will run into uh, various decisions and, and, and options that will be discussed, and it ain't over yet. Oh, absolutely. There's going to be, uh, we're going to get new information. We know that there will be more cases that come up in the fall. There will be a fourth wave. But I'm certainly hoping, and certainly what public health officials have been saying, is that the higher the vaccination rate, uh, the the more that blunts a fourth wave. And so the good news is that in Canada, we have a very high uptake in vaccinations. And so I would encourage everyone to get vaccinated. It's really important. It's our best hope at having as normal school year as possible. So, Michael, remind us, please, the website for you is? My website is michaelzwagstra.com. Z-W-A-A-G-S-T-R-A.com. On Wednesday, I made a mistake suggesting a mandatory vaccine policy during a global pandemic should take a back seat to charter rights. I regret the comment. I was wrong. My fight and my focus must be on keeping people healthy and safe. Ontario NDP leader Andrea Horvath on the issue of vaccinations for people in both education and the healthcare fields and uh, walking back her original statement that she did not believe in required vaccination, saying that, well, you heard what she said. Harvey Bischoff is the former president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. He's going to be an NDP candidate in the next provincial election. Harvey, thanks for coming on the show. And I, I want to say this uh, to you because a number of people have comment, commented s- almost exactly the same way about you in media, people I've talked to over the last few days. Invariably, we feel that you're a straightforward guy and you answer questions and you're not shy to come on the air. So thanks for coming on. And what do you make of your leader statement? Look, um, I, I'm... Uh you know, first of all, I agree with it. First of all, I, I believe in, in vaccine, uh, mandatory vaccination for those who are in those kinds of, you know, real public-facing uh, occupations where keeping uh, clients, students, uh, patients, whatever it is, safe is, is the highest priority. So I support that. Um, you know, the fact that, that uh, Andrea reconsidered her original position, I think, is a, is a sign of leadership. I, I support that as well. Um, and, and I think, you know, I think in part it's a fact, it's a matter of she was waiting to see the government actually take steps to reach out to those who aren't vaccinated, uh, you know, culturally appropriate, uh, where that was, you know, where that would be helpful, um, whatever outreach so that, so that more and more people would get vaccinated and the government did nothing on that score. And under those circumstances, she reconsidered and, and I'm, I'm glad, frankly. Did you have anything to do with, uh, Ms. Horvath changing her position? I, I have nothing like that kind of influence. Uh, certainly not. You at didn't. This point. Ad, you uh, didn't advise her. No, you didn't advise her on it. Sorry, no. I, I mean, absolutely, seriously. I um, no. I had nothing to do with that change. All right. So on the issue of uh, mandatory vaccination, so do I hear you correctly? You're saying you're in favor of that for people in in education. That's right. I am. I am in favor of that. I think there are, you know, there are places where potentially it's not possible, and then and then people need to be accommodated in appropriate ways. You know, if there are medical circumstances or whatever. Um, but overwhelmingly, I think uh, I think 
like uh, educators themselves would support mandatory vaccinations. They, you know, they want safe workplaces and safe places of learning. Is it not, though, possible for the school boards to mandate the, the vaccination themselves? It doesn't have to involve the province, right? So uh, I'll be honest, I'm not sure of the answer to that. That is, um, you know, I wonder if that's going to end up getting litigated by by somebody, um, you know, depending on how that uh, how that might happen. Um, you know, so that's a that's a I think that's a complex legal question. I, I certainly don't have the answers at this point. Well, I think it's going to be legislated by the voters because people have long memories. And this last, as you well know, this last year plus has been extremely difficult for students, for parents, for teachers, uh, for everyone. It's been really hard, and particularly the focus on the education in the province of Ontario. We just had a parent on from Fort Erie who said his uh, high school student has has experienced developmental challenges, you know, that he would otherwise not have experienced had he been exposed to his classmates, you know, without COVID. You know, Ontario schools were closed down longer than any other jurisdiction in the country. Um, And why is that? It's because the measures that could have been taken weren't taken, not just in school. So there were all kinds of measures that you and I have talked about before, about, you know, smaller class sizes, proper ventilation, all of those things, but things in the community as well. Um, You know, we heard the mantra over and over again that schools should be the the last to close and first to open, but you can't do that on a wish. You need a plan for that. It means that you need to prioritize it ahead of some other some other openings of, you know, some businesses and so forth in the community. If you want to prioritize education, I think in principle, everybody believed we should. The government just never took the action to make it happen. So I, I'm almost hesitant to, hesitant to ask this question because you're now in the political arena, but I will, and I'll ask you to just tug on your educator's hat just a little bit. What is your response to what Minister Lecce has said will happen when we roll around to the first day of school in September. He has, among other things, said that each classroom in the province without a mechanical ventilation system will have a standalone HEPA unit when school reopens. But what's your sense of the overall direction this government is taking? I, I just, I, I'm, I'm stunned that it took them until August to announce the reopening plan that had nothing new in it, that didn't seem responsive. I, you know, at one time, the, chief, the new Chief Medical Officer of Health in Ontario talked about different sort of restrictions for students depending on their vaccination status. Nothing like that was included uh, in the announcement. Um, they've talked about putting HEPA filters in classrooms. They haven't talked about what standard they're trying to reach. So what is the yardstick that tells you whether or not um, the air in a class is, is, uh, is safe or relatively safe? Um, they didn't reduce class sizes, even though the day before the school announcement, again, uh, Dr. Moore was talking about the, you know, the critical need for physical distancing, which simply won't be possible in a lot of classrooms. So they have sat on their hands for way over a year and produced a plan that could have been produced a year ago uh, and was inadequate back then. I just, it's beyond me. So I just spoke with uh, Michael Zweigster. You know Michael. I do, a little bit, yep. Yeah, and he likes you the Manitoba High School teacher, author, op-ed writer, and I asked him the other day to have a look at the return to school initiatives uh, within the five provinces where we broadcast, so from Ontario through British Columbia. And when we step west from Ontario, we get to Manitoba, the realities of going back to school loosen up, certainly over Ontario, and continue so in Saskatchewan and Alberta, 
and then also in BC with some more regional realities in BC. But but Ontario has the has the most probably I I'm, I'm going to use this word advisably advisedly uh, restrictive realities in returning back to school. So are you saying then that you like what the provinces in the West, particularly Saskatchewan and Alberta, are doing, or are you challenging their approach? Um, I'm I'm absolutely less familiar with uh, with the other provinces. Um, you know, wasn't wasn't my purview, um, and so I looked at the Ontario things, and I looked at um, because we, you know, when I in my former role, um, we engaged uh, an expert epidemiologist, a PhD, who was able to give us good advice about what she believed would provide the appropriate levels of safety, and that's kind of you know that's what I've been measuring the Ontario response against. Um, but if they're less restrictive than Ontario, frankly, I'm, I mean, that would that would make me nervous if I was a parent in those in those other provinces. But, uh, you know, bear in mind, again, Ontario had to shut down schools for longer than anybody because the pandemic was so badly mishandled in this province. Um, and that that the the effects of that on our on our students was really um, it's unconscionable that it was allowed. Why did you make the step from educator, president of the Ontario Secondary School? School Teachers Federation to politics. Why? Um, well, I mean, look, I'm 31 years in education. Um, it was I felt time to pass the torch to to new leadership within the organization. I think that's a good thing um, to have to have renewal and and you know uh, uh, fresh perspective and so forth. Um, and then I thought about you know I look at what's happening in this province. Um, as, as you know, in my union role, I was it was a political role essentially, in large part. I look at the things that are happening in this province. I look at the the you know what's happened to education. I look what's happened to health care. I look at the absolute tragedy that occurred in our long term care homes during the pandemic. No, no, Harvey, Harvey, and, and I, Harvey, don't don't turn this into a political campaign for me today. Just I'm just gonna I'm gonna finish that thought, Roy. I yeah. couldn't stay on the sidelines. Okay, I wanted to help out. On March 24, twenty twenty. New Zealand imposed one of the most onerous lockdowns in the free world, with sharp restrictions on international travel, business closures, a prohibition on going outside, and official encouragement of citizens to snitch on neighbors. In May 2020, having hit zero COVID, New Zealand lifted lockdown restrictions, except quarantines for international travelers, and warrantless house searches to enforce lockdowns. Australia also took the zero COVID route, while the initial steps focused on banning international travel, the lockdowns there also involved closed schools, occasional separation of mothers from premature newborns, brutal suppression of protests, and arrests for wandering more than three miles from home. New Zealand's and Australia's temporary achievement of zero COVID and China's claimed successes were greeted with fanfare by the media and scientific journals. China's authoritarian response seemed so successful, despite the country's record of lying about the virus, that panicked democratic governments around the world copied it. The three countries lifted their lockdowns and celebrated. Those would be the countries of China, New Zealand, and Australia. And that is uh, the opening of an article in the Wall Street Journal by Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. He's a professor of medicine at Stanford University. He's a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research, a senior fellow at the Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research. Dr. Bhattacharya directs the Stanford Center of the Demography of Health and Aging. He holds an MD and PhD in economics from Stanford University. He's also one of the three senior university professors 
from Harvard, Oxford, and Stanford, who put forward the controversial Great Barrington Declaration. Um, Dr. Bhattacharya, it's good to have you back on the show. How are you? Oh, thank you for having me, Roy. Real, real pleasure to be on with you. So I, I, I know about your accomplishments, your achievements, your credibility, um, professionally, in the medical profession, uh, economics, Ph.D., and yet you've been treated um, not exactly with the kind of enthusiasm and respect I think you deserve. The word you used was smeared. I mean, it's been it has been a interesting time for uh, open scientific debate and discussion. Uh, it's been I think if you have a view of the science and policy that's contrary to the prevailing view, normally it, you could have a debate, an open debate uh, around these uh, these dis, these disagreements. Uh, in many ways, science has not followed that path. This epidemic, uh, and it's been difficult to have that debate. In part driven by this, I mean, a completely reasonable idea that public health ought to have a unified message. But the problem is that unified message has to be built on uh, on solid science. So, for instance, the science that lockdowns are the only way to address the epidemic is not solid science. Uh, you have to look at other places that have uh, and compare and see if they've actually worked relative to the other potential policies. You know, so, for Sweden is a good example of this has had, at this point, zero COVID deaths. They've been open much of the epidemic, almost all the epidemic. Um, the, the key thing, actually, now, Roy, is the good news that ought to be told, right? Uh, and, and the good news is, this is good news for Canada, it's good news for the United States, it's good news for Sweden, for the UK, any country that has, that has used the vaccine to protect the vulnerable old has decoupled cases from deaths from this virus. It's turned this virus, this vaccine has turned this virus from a very deadly uh, uh, infection that harms the old and the vulnerable uh, into something that's much more manageable. We should no longer be worried so much about cases as we once were because cases don't lead inevitably to death the way they did before. Um, the idea that we should have a policy that addresses just cases ignores the devastating harms from the lockdown. I think the Alberta uh, minister's decision is a good one. It, it echoes what Boris Johnson did last last month mm -hmm. in the UK with, with Freedom Day. Uh, uh, let me let me ask you let me ask you this, Doctor Bhattacharya. When when you talk about and I, maybe you can just give us a little bit of a reminder of what the Great Barrington decision uh, was. Um, but when you take that the Great Barrington decision, which you and uh, Professors Kuldorf and uh, Gupta brought forward. When you take the Great Barrington decision and you compare it to what New Zealand, China, and Australia did, and they were lauded, they've been lauded internationally for the decisions they've made. Where's the where's the divide? Where's the separation? Uh, and sure, um, I mean that's a really good question. So the the Great Barrington Declaration is based on on two indisputable scientific facts. One is that it's older populations who face an enormously high risk from this disease, whereas younger populations, the disease is much milder. 80% of the deaths have happened in Canada for people over 65, something, on the line, something close to that. Uh, same thing in the United States. In fact, everywhere in the world that's true, that the, the deaths happen to older people. 
Um, so it's older people who face a very severe risk, whereas young people face a much less, lower risk. The second scientific fact is that lockdowns are harmful, harmful for everybody, harmful psychologically, uh, with you know exploding rates of depression, anxiety, uh, substance abuse. Uh, you know, it, and and if missed schooling is devastating for children. We missed uh, treating cancer patients. We basically decided that only COVID mattered for public health. And in fact, there's an enormous number of other conditions that are important for the health of the population so to manage cancer, to manage diabetes, to manage all kinds of other things. You put those together and you say, don't lock down. Instead, protect the vulnerable. The vulnerable are the people that are older. Don't, don't send COVID-infected patients back to nursing homes, as was done in Quebec in the early days of the epidemic. Uh, do everything in your power to protect the vulnerable. The Australian and the New Zealand and the Chinese response was very different. The idea was to lock down sharply, reduce the number of cases to zero, and then declare the epidemic done. The problem with that approach is that it's not possible to actually keep the cases to zero. As Australia has found out, and as New Zealand has repeatedly found out, is it's had to lock down over and over and over again. Now, but the world is interconnected. This is a very, very infectious disease. Uh, this disease can be spread to animals. There are animal reservoirs for disease, so just eliminating in humans is not enough. And the lockdown harms are absolutely devastating. Uh, so those are the those are the two contrasting approaches. Mm-hmm. With the with the vaccine, you have a fantastic tool for focused protection of the vulnerable. The vaccine is so effective at reducing mortality and and uh, and severe disease. That, that you use it preferentially on the old, just as Canada has done, and you've protected them. You've turned the disease that once was a deadly thing, thing for those, uh, infection for people that are vulnerable, into something much more manageable. Um, at that point, what's the justification for the lockdown? Cases? Well, cases are not, if they don't lead to death and severe disease, they have, you have to compare that against the lockdown harms. It's just, it doesn't add up. The lockdowns are just a, what I, I believe was a mistake before, but certainly now that we've vaccinated the old, protected them, it, it's, a, it's a, an enormous public health mistake. So, uh, Dr. Bhattacharya, you found yourself being, let's say, enthusiastically attacked, vigorously attacked for the Great Barrington Declaration. Do you think you find yourself in conflict with what I'm calling the accepted new medical orthodoxy? I mean, I think it was more than just medical, Roy. Uh, the the counterattack on the Great Barrington Declaration, which we described and discussed in the last segment, right. was uh, was was deeply political. Uh, governments around the world that had adopted lockdowns had in the spring and kept them in, in some parts of them in place through the summer could not admit that they'd made a mistake. And instead of engaging in debate, they engaged in propaganda to discredit the, the ideas. So, for instance, I'll just give you one concrete example. The Great Barrington Declaration, the, the central plank of it, called for protection of vulnerable people. That was the most important idea in it. Uh, the, uh, the, the governments around the world, including, including in the UK, Canada, and the United States, uh, basically mischaracterized that as a call for letting the virus rip through the population, which decidedly did not argue for. As I said, the central plank was protection of the vulnerable. It's an act of propaganda to lie about the uh, what uh, you know, sort of the opposition uh, plan. 
instead of engaging about thinking about ways to better protect the vulnerable, the assertion was made that it's impossible to protect the vulnerable without a lockdown, which is false, because you can see the example of Sweden uh, is, is, is a good example, a good, good counterexample, um, where, where, you know, they, they, I mean, they didn't do it perfectly, but they protected the vulnerable quite well. They had lower per capita death rates than uh, most countries in Europe, which did lockdown. Um, and have they also have lower excess mortality rates in the young than Canada, for instance. Um, so you, you have, a, you have a, a situation where you have a set of ideas that you've bought into, you've sold the population on through, essentially by causing the population to panic. You have opposition in the form of, of, of you know, it's not just us. These, the, the plan we put forward was actually, it's, it's actually an old plan. It's the old pandemic management plan that Canada had, that the United States had. Every, every country on earth actually had this plan, something like what we put forward. It wasn't a new idea. But uh, we had instead a, a, adopted a path of lockdown, and uh, it's really hard to make uh, an admission that we'd made a mistake. I think people still have trouble admitting that that was that there was a mistake because of all the incredible sacrifices the population had made on this front. Yeah, uh, the, yeah. the Canadian broadcast, the, the CBC, for instance, uh, put this kind of propaganda out when we put out the, the, the Great Barrington Declaration. They put on scientists uh, who didn't agree with us. Uh, but then would not put us on the air to let us respond. Well, I was, um, you know, that, that that always disturbed me because I thought, you know, you're credible people, very credible people. So if you disagree with the position you've taken or what you're putting forward, and by the way, we've spoken with Colonel David Redmond several times on this program, the former d- director of the Alberta Office for Emergency Management, and they had, uh, the, you know, they had the uh, the uh, pandemic plans in place agreed to by the provinces and the federal government. And as Colonel Redmond told us on several occasions, the moment COVID arrived, the plans went out the window. But, uh, Dr. Bhattacharya, in the three minutes we have left, let me move. You mentioned Sweden. Let me move to the spectator piece that you and your colleagues, Professor Kaldorf and Professor Gupta, wrote. Sweden's lessons for the UK's third wave. So we're now worried in North America about the potential for a fourth wave. But what are the lessons that Sweden's experience teaches? So the main thing uh, is, is if you look at the most recent wave of cases in Sweden, it's a, and this, which happened this spring, it was an enormous wave of cases this spring. At the beginning of that, Sweden had actually only vaccinated maybe 10% of its population. But they did a very clever thing. They use those vaccines in service of focused protection. They vaccinated older people who are really at high risk of dying if they get COVID. And then they, they did other things to protect them as well. Um, and even though, the, the, you know, without a lockdown, the cases went skyrocketed high, the number of deaths actually were very low per capita compared to, compared to many other countries that had similar, uh, you know, it's, they've decoupled cases from deaths successfully by following a focus protection plan. And now the same thing happened in the UK, and the same thing is happening in the United States as well. As cases go up, the deaths don't go up. And actually, a similar thing is happening in Canada. It's a, we should be declaring a great victory. We, it's a, we've achieved focus protection by using the vaccine to protect the vulnerable. In, in, the, in the spectator piece, you're right. As COVID becomes endemic, it will no longer pose the same danger to people that it once did. In its endemic state, there is no point in testing asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic people and obsessing over case numbers, unless the objective is endless panic. We do not test and count every case of flu or the common cold. Epidemiologists should continue to track COVID's progress, but within reason. And reason being? Exactly. Exactly. Like, I think 
focus the tests on on identifying people who are actually at risk from being really harmed, the vulnerable. Focus the test to use for managing patients, uh, you know, for doctors managing patients. Focus the test on the, on those kinds of things rather than identifying mild COVID cases or asymptomatic COVID cases that pose no harm to the people that are infected, but uh, induce people to panic and cause lockdowns to happen. And so you're not you're schools. not you're not anti-vaccine, obviously. No, no. I mean, I think the vaccine is a wonderful thing. It's, it's, it, it, I think it's, it's been the key to ending the epidemic. Where do you think we're headed in the next year plus? I think there's one of two futures, Roy. I think one is that we declare a, a, a great victory over the, vac- the, 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 the this terrible disease, uh, and we should. That's, I think, the path we should, and we should, we should uh, look back and say at, honestly at the mistakes we made around the lockdowns, and then readopt the old pandemic plans again. Should another disease like this come about? Um, the other path is an endless series of lockdowns because we sit there counting cases, panicking the population. That's where I'm afraid where Australia and New Zealand are right now is that they uh, they will lock down. Uh, the cases won't get, might go down again. You know, they're in their winter season, so that's why it's going up now. Right. Uh, but then, like, then it comes back down. It'll, it'll declare victory. The demand for the vaccines will be lo- of zero, and, okay. and they, and the cases will come back and a lockdown. Endless lockdown. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to the Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.